the things, I've stumbled into the world of Bitcoin. Now, as I've said previously, I came into this because I was interviewing people about the disease going around. We call that COVID-19 or the coronavirus. And people, just as a matter of course, seem to bring up Bitcoin. And so I decided that I needed to have an expert about basically currency. So I chose, or I was basically introduced to Dr. Lazo of uh, over in England. And, you know, and so he presented one side of it. And I got a whole lot of blowback saying that I missed this or that about, you know, the Bitcoin situation. And while I want to make it clear that I'm certainly not advocating for Bitcoin, um, I do feel not necessarily an obligation, but a curiosity, I suppose, to talk about it because it's a thing going on in 2019 and apparently it's going on in the minds of a lot of people. This was a currency that began in the wake of the 2008 uh, financial crash, as some might say. But the first time uh, Bitcoin was ever sold for an object was when a man in America bought a pizza with it in 2010. And the price of the pizza was 10,000 uh, bitcoins. So that's pennies per per bitcoin. And the price of bitcoin has been snowballing from there. Anyway, I found uh, this guest, Elliot Sawyer, to be a very knowledgeable and essentially generous person, as are basically every guest I've ever had on the History Voyager. Anyway, so... Let's give it up for Mr. Elliot uh, Sawyer. Okay, this is Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager with Elliot Sawyer. Would you please tell everybody why I wanted to speak to you so badly? Uh, good morning from New Zealand. Uh, I'm Elliot. I, I was introduced to Ben by a colleague of mine who saw him on Reddit, and uh, Ben was looking for a Bitcoin expert. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm a Bitcoin expert, but I do, I do know quite a bit about the technology. I've been using it for oh, six, uh, seven years now, and uh, I'm really interested in what the technology can do. Um, it's often you, it's often discussed as being used as a currency, but it's it's just so much more than that. Um, there's a lot of different uses for Bitcoin beyond using it as a money. Um, it's an encryption protocol. It's used for uh, foreign exchanges and international money transfers. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot that can be done with it. Okay. That's, wow. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, um, like you just said, what can Bitcoin be used for other than money? Let's talk about so that the, first. Sure. The, the primary use of Bitcoin, as it was announced in 2008, was mainly to be used as an online internet money. And that, uh, to be honest, that's, that's what I got into it for. Um, I saw it as something that was going to eventually replace PayPal. And that was going to be what you were going to be. What, that, that was how you would buy things online. Like if you went to Amazon or something, I, I assumed that um, rather than using PayPal, you'd just use this Bitcoin thing and just go from there. 
Now, as a, as an American living in New Zealand overseas, I often don't have access to U.S. dollars, so uh, an online currency really appealed to me. Uh, but once I learned a bit more about the technology, I realized that there's a lot more that can be done with it. Um, for example, you can get um, you can use your private keys to sign messages, and uh, that gives you um, that gives you some assurance that you you know who you're communicating with. For example, if you um, if the seller was going to be shipping something to you, um, you could write your address down and sign it with your Bitcoin key. And that way the person knows that the person that made the payment uh, owns the address that you're shipping it to. So there's a, there's a lesser chance of fraud there. Okay. Okay. That's, that's excellent. Um, so you say you've been in the Bitcoin for six years. Um, do you do you use Bitcoin for? Um, I guess, if you don't mind my asking, what do you use Bitcoin to purchase? If you use it to purchase anything, uh, just thinking some of the things I've purchased over the years. I, to be honest, I don't use it very often. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but the main things I've purchased before, um, I bought a Bitcoin miner with one from uh, somebody here in New Zealand. Um, I sold a burrito once to my boss. Um, uh, one of the things I used it for. Uh, okay, pretty well down to folk. I mean, the 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 burrito is pretty well down to folk, I would think. Yeah, um, though that, that's uh, kind of what got one thing I do when I research new things is I try to figure out, okay, if it was me, how would I use it? And um, I was discussing it with my my dad, and he said, "Oh, you should try running a food truck with it." And I'm like, "Okay, well, what's it take to run a food truck?" So I just thought about it. I'm like, "All right, so you have to go find a truck. You have to learn how to cook something." You have to go to a crowd of people and start selling some burritos to people. And I, I didn't actually do that. I didn't go buy a truck and sell burritos to people. But I did do a, uh, a meetup up in Auckland about it where I, I discussed it with about, I'd say, 100 people or so. And I actually made the burritos in the, in the shop and uh, I sold it to one person for uh, $5 worth of Bitcoin at the time. And what's interesting about that, which is kind of what your, um, uh, the person yesterday was mentioning, the, the price of Bitcoin is very volatile. And um, that burrito that I sold for $5 in 2013 is worth about 300 bucks today, which is uh, quite amazing when you think about it. That, that is amazing. Um, I have an expert, another expert that I haven't put up yet, uh, who, who got into some of the, the benefits of fiat currency versus Bitcoin. Like, for example, legally, you can pay your taxes in dollars mm -hmm. because they're you know, fiat currency. So, I mean, obviously you see right away, like the, I don't see, for example, a state run utility using Bitcoin as payment, for example, um, where I might one day see the bank use it as payment for mortgages and things like that. Um, but what do you see as some of the, I guess the, the barriers and maybe some of the barriers coming down to people using Bitcoin. Some of the barriers. Uh, I think the one big barrier is the price. Uh, people have it in their head that, um, I mean, a Bitcoin today is worth, I didn't actually check the price this morning, but I think it's worth somewhere north of 10,000 USD. Um, I think the first uh, barrier people have is they think, oh, in order to get into Bitcoin, I need to have $10,000 in my pocket. That, that isn't true. Um, you can actually buy fractions of a Bitcoin. You can buy 20 bucks worth of Bitcoin, for example, if you want to. 
And um, I, I think that's one barrier is knowing that uh, you could actually work with very small amounts of Bitcoin if you want to. Um, another barrier, I guess, would be um, the traffic on the network, uh, the number of fees that are associated with making a transaction. And uh, there's also uh, Bitcoin has a bit of a dark history to it where people think it's just used online for drugs and stuff like that. And uh, again, it's not always true. It's what it used to be used for and people can use it for that. But I see it as a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of analogous to like I use Tor for some stuff. Right. And the funny thing is like when I use Tor for the next several days in my Google News, I see like all these stories about people using Tor for all kinds of nefarious purposes. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's interesting. I actually use Tor for a very different reason. Um, so I'm, I'm running a Bitcoin based business here in New Zealand. It's not live yet, but um, one of the things that I use Tor for is a way to um, store data offline. Uh, I don't actually go on the internet with it. Uh, what I do with it is I use it as an encryption platform for storing say user data or uh, utility bills, that, that the things I don't want to have on my web server and I, I want to keep them securely. I use Tor to access that. Okay, okay. Um, also, um, have you noticed, I guess, as more and more people become aware of Bitcoin, are there more and more uh, solutions, or for lack of a better word, or applications, or just things you can use bitcoin to do like as more and more people have used it have you noticed that yeah yeah there absolutely is uh so there 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 are a lot of other cryptocurrencies out there that do things differently than bitcoin does and that's that's fine um i'd say the the main thing that you for other applications of bitcoin the things that you can look at are how it's used as an encryption platform um so i mentioned signing messages before uh if Bitcoin itself is based on public and private key cryptography. Uh, to kind of break that down for you, that means that there, there are two encryption keys. Uh, one is for encrypting and one is for decrypting. So you can use the public key to write a message to somebody that encrypts it. And the private key means that only you, the person with the private key, can decrypt it. So it's only readable to the holder of the key. Um, because Bitcoin is based on that kind of cryptography, you can use it to encrypt and decrypt messages privately. Um, you can use it to calculate shared secrets, so you can form an actual symmetric encryption key for it. Um, there's a lot of, yeah, and I think another one that's often overlooked is uh, the its use in foreign exchange. So have you, have you done much uh, foreign exchange before, Ben? I have a little bit, just a very like, little bit, but yeah. Well, for me, like it's something that I have to do every now and then. I have to transfer money from the U.S. to New Zealand and vice versa. Um, normally, when if you didn't use Bitcoin for that, you would have to go to a bank. You'd have to initiate a wire transfer. They'd check your ID and ask you all kinds of weird questions, especially if it's over $10,000. And um, they'd probably take a cut out of the exchange rate and charge you a fee for it. So at the end of the day, once you actually go to US, go to the U.S. and maybe come back to New Zealand, you've lost probably 150 bucks worth of, uh, worth of hard-earned money. Uh, with Bitcoin, another way to do it is you could actually just buy Bitcoin on an exchange in one country and then you have it immediately accessible in the other country. You don't have to actually do a transfer. The reason for that is because if you hold the private key in both in if you hold a private key and it gets deposited in one area, you already have it over here. There's not an actual transfer that's happened. Okay. All right. 
So you see it as a way to no muss, no fuss, get money from uh, the U.S. to New Zealand and vice versa. Uh, um, yeah, that's one way to do it. Um, I've I've had to do that a couple times for when I traveled. So I, if I every now and then I'll fly back to the U.S. to visit family and whatnot. And um, rather than uh, carrying a bunch of cash across the border and spending it in the U.S., um, I actually found it more useful to buy a little bit of Bitcoin in New Zealand arrive in the u.s and then cash it out there because i mean i'm a u.s citizen so i can i can uh i have a bank account over there that i'm able to use so um i'm able to just convert it locally rather than using an international transfer so you can uh, so again forgive my ignorance about bitcoin but i suppose i should tell you i don't know if i've told you this but why i want to talk to people about bitcoin in the first place um i interview people all over the essentially all over the world basically and talking about the disease uh mm-hmm. the covid covid19 mm-hmm. and one thing that kept coming up was um people keep saying that when bitcoin comes around um you know our world is going to get better right and right you know i'm i'm trained as a historian and i have a bit of a background as a journalist and that kind of thing so i don't you know i'm I'm out of my area with Bitcoin per se. So mm-hmm. I just thought, you know, I had on an expert who said the cons about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And, but I got a lot of blowback from folks, you know, regular type people about mm-hmm. he didn't talk about this or that. And, you know, I don't really have a dog in the fight, so to right. say. So I thought I'd get some other people. And my own personal take which is evolving over the last several days is that I don't think Bitcoin is, is, is uh, a viable currency today, mm-hmm. but maybe 10 years from now, uh, who knows what's going to happen. Right. And, and you're somebody with six years of experience. Have I got that right? Uh, yeah. Uh, seven years. Yep. Yeah. S- seven using this product or whatever. And I was wondering if you could talk me, walk me through the early days of it, of your experience of it, to maybe the last time you used it, or today, or whatever, what have you. Right. Let me have a think about it for a second. Um, so my first understanding of Bitcoin came when I was working in IT. Um, I. I heard about it from somebody that um, was talking about it as a sp- as a way to combat spam. So when when you're mining bitcoins, you um you have to do a lot of computation in order to do that. And uh, one very early application of the technology that was mentioned, I think back in like 2011 or something like that. I, I remember it well. It was a slash dot comment, but um or not a comment, an article. And um somebody mentioned that uh, before sending out an email, you could try to mine a bitcoin. And that would combat spam because the amount of computation involved would uh, dissuade spammers from trying to send email out. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. And I didn't really think about it much beyond that. I mean, it's just on Slashdot, so I just went on with my day after that. But uh, fast forward a bit to 2013. Um, that was when uh, I think it was worth probably about 100 bucks or something like that. And um, I, had, I had read an article about Mt. Gox, and I'm like, oh, you know. $100 for a Bitcoin. That sounds pretty awesome. I mean, what have I got to lose? So I, I did all the research that I needed to actually get my money over to Mt. Gox and 
um, order a Bitcoin and then I uh, just kind of worked on it from there. Um, yeah, then after that, I just got really fascinated with the technology. I, um, I started thinking, as I mentioned before, uh, it was, it was going to be a way to um, pay for things online that didn't involve using PayPal. Um, and yeah, uh, from there, I've, I've just been really fascinated by the technology. Um, there's been a lot of research into other uses of blockchain technology. Um, the blockchain can be, you know, I think that your previous talker mentioned what the blockchain is very broadly. Uh, the blockchain is like a um, distributed ledger of transactions. What it means is that when you write to it, everybody has a copy of the same thing. So you can't forge anything on it. Everybody has the same copy and we all trust it. Um, trying to think what else I can say about it. Um yeah, and I guess uh, beyond that, there's also um, uses in, as I mentioned, with cryptography. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uses with uh, being able to encrypt and decrypt messages, and uh, you learn a lot about computer security and whatnot when you're uh, while you're learning that. Sorry, it was a very broad question. I'm not really sure how better to answer it for you. Well, I mean, fundamentally, this is a history podcast, and so I was okay. thinking. You know, I'm I'm kind of thinking I have zero experience with Bitcoin okay. at all, and I was kind of hoping, like, have you noticed it's easier to use Bitcoin or it's more, for lack of a better word, GUI? You know, graphical user interface more, more user. I think it has. Imp- I think it has improved a lot over time. Uh, there's a lot of research going on, not even research, commercial products going on. Um, to make the user experience easier to use. Um, I mentioned earlier that I'm working on a startup that handles, um, the, the startup handles uh, Bitcoin payments to utilities. Um, so one of the focuses I have there is to make that payment as easy as possible. Um, there's also uh, different approaches to um, how you would how you would actually access your Bitcoin and make that payment. So you might see like an Android app or an iOS app that might um, that might wrap that experience for you and make it a little bit easier to use. Okay. One of the things that everybody that I talk to keeps, or a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people keep saying is they, they assume they just take it as an article of faith that the U S dollar will melt down at some point within the next two to four to six years. Mm-hmm. And which is a which is interesting to me that, I've spoken to so many people that seem to think that number one, just as a article of faith, but number two, I'm wondering, um, where do you think that comes from? That, that basically this given article of faith that the U S dollar is going to melt down and we're all going to um, Bitcoin. I think from a lot of, uh, for a lot of points of view, the U S dollar is already melting down. It's not a question of when it will happen. Uh, a few people will tell you that it already is. Uh, some people will tell you that the volatility that you see in Bitcoin is not because Bitcoin itself is volatile, but because uh, the U.S. dollar is being printed in mass. Uh, I mean, you're you're getting trillions of dollars just printed, um, and because Bitcoin is measured in U.S. dollars, uh, you're, you see that as a translation to how the price has increased. Um, so it, I think it is, it's very possible that the U.S. dollar might collapse someday. It might not. It might recover. Um, 
but it, I, I think for a lot of people, it's a way to kind of hedge your bets. Uh, rather than having all your eggs in one basket, you can have a nice mix of, say, cryptocurrency. Uh, some people use gold for the same reason, and uh, other people just prefer fiat. Yeah. Okay. So, um, somebody uh, that I talked to the other day said, um, essentially, cryptocurrency is essentially email in 1989. Um, and by that, he meant that it's not a, it's it's a transformative technology that isn't widely adopted yet. But he looks down the road and surely it'll become more usable and more, you know, more accepted and it'll be a utility to people. Much, I guess, much like money is today. Um, do you see that? Do you, do you see that crypto is going to be that, honestly, that sort of down to folk? Yeah, I do. Um, I think he's uh, spot on. I think uh, at some point it was early days. It was email in 1989. Um, and it has improved quite a bit since then. Um, yeah, I, th I think the, 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 uh, the uses of it and the user experience is, uh, improving quite a bit over time. What are some of the ways in which the, uh, user experience has improved? Um, so I guess one thing I can ask, I can speculate about is, uh, the address format. So originally, Bitcoin addresses were base 58 characters. You had to type them out very specifically. Um, like they were case sensitive. You had to make sure not to, um, uh, you had to make sure all your numbers and your letters were positioned correctly. You had to type it very, very specifically. And um, people have noticed that, hey, that's not a very good user experience. So then QR codes came out and people realized that you can take a picture of a QR code and automatically fill that address in. Still not great. I mean, you still have to see this big, ugly address all the time. So later on, the address format changed. It's backwards compatible with the um, with the previous address. But uh, now you have a more nicely formatted address that's a bit more user-friendly to read. Um, stepping out of Bitcoin a little bit, you have things like on Ethereum that you have like these little domain names that can be used in place of um, in place of an actual address. I can't remember what the uh, what the name of the technology is, but they look just like website addresses. So uh, rather than handing somebody this really long, complicated SHA three hash, um, you could just give somebody an email or a uh, domain name, and you could just pay to that domain name. Um, so the user experience as as time goes on is. Uh, it is improving over time. And uh, I think your friend is right. It's, uh, it's constantly improving, but it's probably not quite there yet. And um, Dr. Dr. Lazo uh, mentioned that there would need to be a black swan event that would get people basically move essentially the world's population or a, a huge chunk of it off of fiat onto Bitcoin. Uh, do you see that? Or do you see more of a, a gradual transition? It's interesting. I actually had this thought in April, right around the time New Zealand went into its four-week lockdown. Um, I'm not sure what uh, what the lockdown experience was like for you, but in New Zealand, uh, we went to level four lockdown sometime in March or April, and we were basically locked inside because of the coronavirus. Uh, I mean, we could go out for necessities like um, grocery shopping and that kind of thing, but for the most part, you could you couldn't you couldn't transact like you. You couldn't use cash for anything. 
Uh, they force people to accept PayWave for free because normally PayWave has a fee associated with it. So they were trying to basically shoehorn PayWave onto everybody, whether you liked it or not. And um, I was talking to a friend and I realized that Bitcoin is a contactless payment system. I can make a Bitcoin payment from 10 meters away. As long as you have a QR code printed up, I can make a payment just fine. Ben, if you had a QR code printed on your T-shirt right now, I could actually pay you from New Zealand without ever contacting you. Um, so for me, the, the black swan, this, the black swan event you discussed, I thought might've been the coronavirus impact, uh, that's, that's having on the world. It is a contactless payment system. And I think a lot of research could be done on, um, how Bitcoin can help facilitate, uh, cashless payments in that regard. Well, what's, what's amazing to me. I mean, I do a lot of episodes of my podcast on, on coronavirus, um, but what's amazing to me is it's becoming rapidly apparent uh, to basically any intelligent person that reads any of this stuff, not even medical professionals, that it's pretty possible that, that coronavirus could be with us for years, mm-hmm. um, realistically. And, you know, there's other stuff that happened that came out today, literally today, that's pretty amazing and, and terrible. And I don't know if if it if Bitcoin is going to be the black swan event. I mean, coronavirus. I'm sorry, is going to be the black swan event. But I know it's going to be. We're going to have to go to cashless payments, because I talked to somebody, for another episode of my podcast where he talked about how money transfers uh, the virus better than anybody ever thought. Mm-hmm. Um. So, there's that. Um, but if you don't mind, because I, I also do talk about COVID, I would love to hear what the lockdown was like, uh, for you in New Zealand and kind of what you're seeing in New Zealand. Yeah. Don't mind. Uh, so the, I think, I believe the first case, well, the first official case was, um, sometime in early February, I think it was, they just found a historical case that so actually predated the first case. But, um, the first announcement I believe was very late February. I think it was actually the 29th of February. And, um, or not 29th of February, 28th of February. And, um, it kind of, everybody just kind of panicked from there. We watched people coming in and two weeks later, um, the prime minister announced that the border would be closed two, three weeks, something like that. And, um, once the border closed, we escalated up from level two, very briefly to level three and then on to level four and level four meant that everybody stays home. Kids don't go to school. Um, we all have to work remotely, um, so it, was, it forced everybody to adapt very quickly. So, I mean, I, I'm already kind of set up to work from home, but um, I had to very rapidly put together a, a home office. I'm actually still using that home office down in my down in my garage. Um, but I had to set up my kids to uh, to do their schoolwork remotely. I had to help my wife get her uh, get her computer set up. Um, so we, we all just had to very rapidly adapt to it. And, uh, from there, the game changed a little bit. They didn't really have, co- uh, contract tra- tracing yet. So, um, we all just had to, uh, wear masks when we went out, there was a face mask shortage. So we had to adapt. We had, I, I wore a ski mask when I went to the grocery store, which was interesting. Um, there was a hand sanitizer shortage. So <laughs> we had to, um, we had to make sure to very, uh, very tediously wash our hands all the time. And, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting experience, but New Zealand, um, handled it very well. I believe after it was supposed to be a four week lockdown. And then we went to, I think there was another week where we just waited it out a little bit longer and then they relaxed restrictions a little bit. 
and uh, after that, it was uh, it was pretty good. Everybody was like, "All right, cool, COVID's eliminated." We uh, we knew that there were some cases out there, but they were all contained. And uh, we went 100 days or so uh, without any cases, and then the second outbreak happened in Auckland. Um, I'm not in Auckland at the moment, but um, I know people that how are. Fa- and- how far about is uh, I'm sorry? How far is mm-hmm. uh, Wellington, where you are, to Auckland? Like how far is? It? Uh, probably if you were to drive it, I'd say it's about 800 kilometers. It's about the distance between Phoenix and Los Angeles. So that's not, you know, that's not nothing. That's not a small. Uh, yeah, you could you could do it in a day if you really tried, but uh, most people just uh, if they were to drive from Wellington to Auckland, they um, okay. yeah, right. they just they take two days. Okay. Um, and I guess were, were the people of New Zealand more or less. Uh, accepting of the lockdown and the mask. Yeah, and... absolutely. For the most part, everybody was absolutely compliant with it. We knew what was at stake. Uh, you're always going to have some people that just don't agree with it, or they just don't don't do the right thing. But um, yeah. yeah, for the most part, I'd say ninety nine, maybe ninety ninety nine percent of people were uh, were absolutely compliant with it. We all understood what what needed to be done. Okay, um, I've got another question, if you don't mind. Um, sure. You're an American, so as mm-hmm. an American. Do you find yourself explaining to uh, New Zealanders why America doesn't want to lock down or, or not? I, I actually get that question a lot, and I, I don't really have a, a solid answer for it. Uh, usually what I say is that I haven't actually lived in the, in the United States for almost 10 years. So uh, culturally, I don't really understand what's happening there anymore. But having grown up there, I do kind of get it. I, I mean, there's... Well, when you're growing up in America, your upbringing is very, um, you're, you're kind of taught to be self-reliant, if you know what I mean. Um, oh, yes, sir. Like there, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of self-reliance. You don't want to depend on anybody to do anything. You just kind of have to get it done yourself. But there's also um, a very distrust of the state. Like you don't want uh, government telling you what to do. So when the government does tell you to do something, uh your natural inclination is to just kind of trust it. That, nah, I'm not going to do that. And uh, go off and do your own thing to keep yourself safe. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I guess that's the main difference. And it's hard to explain uh, that kind of culture to people when you haven't lived in it for 20 something years. Why is New Zealand different? What What is the difference? Do you think? Um, it's hard to say. Uh, New Zealand is a very different place from America. Um, I enjoy living here. I mean, I came here on holiday and just fell in love with the place. And um, yeah, it's a uh, it's a very different lifestyle. Um, How so? How is it different? Uh, I'd say the work life balance is the main thing. So um, in the U.S., when you're working, um, it's really hard to stick to your forty hours. Um, so like everybody does the nine to five. You do eight hours a day. You go home. You're tired. You wake up and do it again. Um, in New Zealand, it's very easy to stick to that. So you can uh, you can stick to your uh, your work day. You can go home. You can have a life. Um, I don't. The salaries are a little bit lower, but the re- the reason for that is that there's so many other things I don't have to pay for. Like I, I get free healthcare, for example. Um, when I get sick, I don't have to worry about getting a massive hospital bill. Uh, the only thing I have to pay for at the hospital is parking. Um, it's great. It's uh, I, that's what, uh, probably the main thing I like about most about New Zealand is that uh, I can live ha- happily and comfortably. Okay, yeah, sounds like a good deal. Um, so I guess uh, okay. So I asked you this question before. Now, 
I'm going to ask it to you again. Mm-hmm. But not talking to New Zealanders. You're just talking to me. Right? Pretend, right. pretend you're not talking to one of the biggest independent podcasts in America, okay? Pretend you're just we're just talking to each other. Sure. If I had to sit, if we were sitting across the table and it was the two of us, mm-hmm. and there was nobody else here, if I had to put you on the spot and say, "Yeah, okay, but what do you? Th- why do you think we've become this global pandemic?" Like, I don't know if you understand. I don't know if you know this, but the 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 I guess like the uh, event where Trump apparently got coronavirus um, mm-hmm. has yielded more cases than in Vietnam and Thailand combined. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is it about why was this country so susceptible to this virus, which if you really look at it, is pretty easy to, to basically mitigate. Like why was our country this susceptible? It's really hard to answer that, but uh, I, mean, I guess I would say that every country is different. Um, I think a lot of, I, I should probably preface this by saying that I'm not a doctor or an epidemiologist, but um, I think there's a lot of things that, uh, there's a lot of reasons that uh, that could happen that have nothing to do with the people in the country. I mean, it could be something as simple as population density. I mean, you get more people in a room, the, the virus will very obviously spread to more people. Um, I mean, aside from that, culturally, you just have to know how to take precautions. If somebody tells you to wear a mask because you're not going to get sick, I mean, sure, it's your God-given right to refuse that order. That's that's cool. But when I hear something like that saying that, okay, well, if you wear a mask, the chances of you getting sick are going to be vastly reduced. I'm going to go find a mask and wear one. It's mm-hmm. it's nothing against everybody else in the room. I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep myself and my family safe. You know what I mean? Well, I do. And one of the things I wanted to, one of the things, one of the questions I ask all of my American listeners, or my American guests, I should say, is this question snuck up on me, right? And the question was, are you missing anybody? Is anybody, can you account for all the people that you see in your daily life? You'd be amazed how many people can't account for everybody they see in their daily life. Mm-hmm. Like you, it's it's astounding to me how many people I talk to who literally they're missing people. And even if okay, I get this all the time. Oh no, I'm not missing anybody. And then we talk some more, and then oh yeah, and they list out like I don't know, like a lot of people, like a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And it's just I don't know. It I guess that's one of the things that I want to get across to you because you're an American. And you probably have American friends and American family and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of us over here are, are not everybody's accounted for, basically. Like, and nobody, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're either, they either move somewhere else or they, they have something. Because, I mean, I started this podcast um, doing a history of the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I've uncovered or, I guess, theorized is... You can't get COVID if you have, you're not marked down as a COVID case if you haven't been diagnosed as COVID. And the way to get diagnosed as COVID is to turn up to the doctor. And the way to turn up to the doctor is to have insurance. (laughs) Right. So there's like a chain. 
I guess that's one of the bigger differences between the U.S. and New Zealand. So I don't have to do that when I need a COVID test. Right, right. So have you been tested for COVID or? Yep, yep. So I, I, got, I got a test in April. Uh, both of my kids have been tested at some point. Um, but the thing with New Zealand is that if you are showing symptoms, it's it's really not a problem to just turn up and get the test. I think in all cases, we've we got a result in a day and maybe two days. Yeah. I remember when the NBA players started to get tests like really quick. Mm-hmm. That was that was kind of like, wow, there really are two medical systems in this country, aren't there? <laughs> yeah. For real. And actually turns out Are you saying that when you uh if you feel that you have coronavirus symptoms, uh like if it was you, if you if you were worried that you might have been exposed to COVID, like what's the process for you? Like how how do you organize a test? I mean, is it Well, I mean, okay, I live right up the road from a from a busy testing site. So mm-hmm. you would go uh, sit in your car, okay? Mm-hmm. You'd go sit in your car and you'd basically wait uh, in your car and you get te- you get a test. And I think, well, in fact, I know uh, now they're they're coverable. I don't know if you remember this, but or maybe you didn't even know it. So all of our medical um, insurance comes mm-hmm. off medicare okay so if medicare recognizes something as a thing that means it's insurable if it's insurable right. that means the doctor can bill for it okay so there was a magical period of time in this country when you couldn't get a test for covid simply because medicare did not know it existed or they didn't officially mark it down as a thing that existed they couldn't bill for it Mm-hmm. So there was a there was a few of those uh, in those early days, but so you would get a test, and I have a buddy that had one, and I think uh, I think his test came back in uh, several days. I forget how long, but uh, he has to get tested kind of regular because his girlfriend um, uh, has a mother with with cancer. So mm-hmm. yeah, but. Um, is there a cost for those tests? I have I have no idea. I'm I'm assuming there is because it's right. available with insurance. Um, and I've certainly heard of cases of uh, poor people, you know, very poor people that had COVID and died and weren't able to be tested. Yeah, it's turned... terrible. It's a very awful yeah. experience when you hear stories like that. They just yeah, there's some is. people that they don't have access to. Um, the testing and the medical care that they need to, to see it through. Well, you're right. And I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. One of the things I, I actually kind of think is that um, one of the things I actually kind of believe is that one way or the other, we're going to get some flavor of what we own this country call socialized medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, hold on. I'm sorry, but um, no I think one of the one of the things that's going to happen is we're going to get uh, some flavor of socialized medicine out of this, uh, simply because um, you know, I mean, even the president has it now, so yeah. which is that's how you find out. I mean, they they think Amy Comey Barrett was actually a carrier, which is something they knew they didn't know you could have carrier. Mm-hmm. You know, you could get over COVID. You know be well but still be a carrier of it which that's scary if that's true that's scary 
Mm. You know. But anyway. So, um, I guess, like, do you have anything you'd want to tell the internet? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I I could talk all day about Bitcoin if you want to keep talking. <laughs> oh, sure. No, let's keep talking about Bitcoin. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, for me, Bitcoin is um, yeah, it's it's always been a really interesting technology for me. I've um, it's I don't want to say it's changed my life, but it's uh, it's been a big part of my life. Um. I always enjoy teaching people how to use it. It's a good way to um, train people on how to keep a set of numbers secret. So how to guess a password, for example, like you don't want people guessing your password. So uh, the way I usually train people to get into Bitcoin is to explain to them what a private key is, why they need to keep it safe and why you should never tell anybody about it. And uh, what would they do to keep 12 words safe? And uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think what people, uh, what strategies they come up with to keep those 12 words safe. And um, it's a good way to explain to people why it's important. So I guess one question I have for you, Ben, is that if I gave you 12 words to keep safe, what would you do? I don't know. Uh... 12 random words. So you, you pick 12 random words out of a dictionary, and I told you that you had to keep them safe for 50 years. How would you do it? Would I keep them in my wallet? Would I? Most likely, I'd probably keep it in my wallet for fifty well, years. It depends, though. It depends. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I'm using Bitcoin in light, like out out in the store, out in the world. Yeah, that's a different use case. I guess uh, I should probably add. Um, so, like, if you were to, if you had a pile of Bitcoin at your disposal and you were thinking about how maybe you could leave it to your family after you've passed on. Um, how would you keep your seed safe or your, your private key safe uh, to pass it on to them? Well, I, I guess I'd put a safe in the house. I right. Mean, I mean, you know, we we're we're living through a economic recession and I've, I'm, I'm so old. I've lived through two of them. So right. I, don't, <laughs> I don't know that I would trust uh, a bank per se with something like that mm -hmm. you know um, I might get a safe but you know um, I certainly wouldn't enter anything like that into a phone right that's exactly right that's not what you want to do yeah um, no. yeah it's it's about keeping those words safe because if anybody sees those words uh, for any reason at all, whether it's your lawyer or somebody at the bank, uh, a thief, a criminal, anything like that. If anybody gets a copy of those 12 words, they own your Bitcoin. And um, that's why I always explain to people why it's important to keep the, uh, keep the 12 words safe. Uh, it's, uh, it's a good way to think about it. It's like, okay, this, is, this isn't really about keeping my financial assets safe. It's more about information security. And once you start thinking of it in that terms, uh, you start getting into things like what's a good password, how do I store passwords securely, and things like that. Um, that's really what uh, what my interest in Bitcoin kind of drives. It's not so much about the technology and the currency, but also just good information security practices, especially online and uh, this day and age. That's probably a good idea. I mean, you know, that's a very good idea, actually.
Yeah, and then from there you just kind of think about okay, uh, once I once I've secured my twelve words, I have the ability to own some Bitcoin now. Now the real power behind it is what happens if you lose access to your twelve words. Like say you you had a a, co- a hot copy of your wallet on your phone for things like going to the grocery store and what have you, and uh, somebody steals your phone or you drop it in a puddle or something like that. Um, how do you recover your coins from those twelve words? And uh, once you teach people how to go through that process and pull their their wealth out of cold storage and move it onto a hot storage again, uh, people really start to see the value of Bitcoin and why it can be so useful. Okay, talk. Okay, I don't know that we actually broke this down. Talk mm-hmm. to me about cold storage versus hot storage. Right. So cold storage is well, cold storage and hot storage is basically what you kind of what you think it is. A hot storage is something that you use actively like you you have a smartphone and you have a little bit of bitcoin or some kind of cryptocurrency on it and it's your day-to-day runner like you use it to buy groceries you might buy gas with it something like that and um basically what your what your hot storage is is you're, you're keeping it accessible to you all the time and you're kind of okay with losing it kind of like the way you approach a wallet you don't keep ten thousand dollars of cash in your wallet you keep a little bit in there to get you through your day, if you lose your wallet, it's not going to be a huge deal. If you lose it, you're not going to you're not going to go bankrupt. If you lose your wallet, um, that's kind of what hot storage is. What cold storage is is kind of what you would consider to be a bank account. Um, like you might have a savings account with all of your wealth stored in it. You might have an um, investment fund or something like that. Um, that's what cold storage is. Cold storage is something that's not easily accessible to you. It's um, like it's uh it's kind of your rainy day fund if you get what i mean like it's um yeah, cold storage is like it's it's it, it, it's the the cash and the mattress under the bed that kind that kind of thing all right let me ask you this though um mm-hmm. say like i put money in the hot storage account right right and i'm i'm going up and i'm you know doing things and yada yada and well i have um say like if i put a certain amount in my hot storage account at say six o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. uh, by midnight the next day. Will that value have changed assuming I didn't actually buy anything or will it stay the same? Do you see uh, it depends. It depends what you mean by value. Okay. Uh, so over the course of the day, your Bitcoin balance is not going to change. So you're okay. you're always going to have the same amount of Bitcoin that you started with, assuming you haven't spent any, of course. But uh, the value to the U.S. dollar that you might be measuring against that might have changed. So, yeah, the value as measured against the U.S. dollar could have changed, but you're always going to have the same amount of Bitcoin no matter what you do. So okay, so terrible analogy, but like say I put two hundred dollars in my wallet, mm-hmm. and I buy. A Big Mac, or I buy a hamburger and fries yep. for like ten dollars. So I have mm-hmm. one hundred ninety dollars in my wallet. Yep. With Bitcoin, say I did that. How much money would I have in my wallet? Well, it would depend on what uh, what the cost of the Big Mac is in Big in Bitcoin. Let's say it's uh, just for the sake of argument, this would be a really expensive Big Mac. But say it's point zero one bitcoins. Um, if you started with one and you deduct 0.01, you would end up with 0.99 bitcoins at the end of the day. Okay. Um, 
Now, to use your analogy, it's a bit of an unfair one because you're when you buy ten dollars worth of Bitmax, or when you Bitmax, when you buy ten dollars worth of Big Macs, um, you're measuring that value against U.S. dollars. But with Bitcoin, you immediately jump from measuring it not in Bitcoin but in terms of U.S. dollars. So it's it's not really a fair comparison. If you forget what a U.S. dollar is, then you never have to worry about it. I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. All right. So. All right. If Big, well, if Big Macs were priced in bitcoins, you wouldn't have the you wouldn't have that same analogy. Okay, that's a fair that's fair. I guess in my mind, I keep thinking the dollar is always going to be there, and in your mind, possibly because you live in New Zealand, and possibly because you're plugged into a whole other wavelength, right? You're you're you can literally see down the road that maybe the dollar is going to crater one day. Uh, yeah, it could be one day. Uh, it could be right now. You, you really don't know. I mean, nobody has a crystal ball. Eh? Well, you know, um, I could tell you an interesting story about the housing crash of 2008. But uh, I know I was actually in the U.S. for that one. <laughs> okay, what was your experience of that? I I was living in Phoenix at the time, and uh, uh, that was one of the, the uh, areas. Yeah, that was one of the epicenters of it, and uh, I was renting. So in the neighborhood I was living in, um, I would say probably one in three houses was being foreclosed on. It was really fascinating. Like that wasn't even the hardest hit neighborhood, but just walking around my block, there were so many uh, for sale signs, and these were people that, like, they just disappeared. Like, they, they, these weren't people that were actively selling their houses. These were people that like literally just up and left, and the bank was foreclosing on their house, and they were auctioning it off or just selling it. Uh, for whatever they could it was uh really fascinating to see that just living through it and um if you were to drive a little bit further out of phoenix and uh, into the uh, kind of i guess the the wider suburbia it was even worse you'd see probably 50 60 percent of houses just uh for sale and just derelict i had a, a friend that was visiting me at the time he was uh actually he went to school as an economist and uh, he was just looking around and he said, Elliot, this is where capital goes to die. <laughs> and uh, it was just a very profound thought that he had. Uh, it's always, it always sticks with me every time I think about that. Well, there, there are certainly scenes that I can, that I will never forget about um, the 2008 crash. I mean, in my own life. Um, one of the things that I, I just kind of, I look at in retrospect and just sort of, I'm amazed at is how very few people ever saw it coming. Like, very, very few people saw it coming. And yet, for a, a select few, it was like, hey, this is going on. <laughs> you know, these banks are doing voodoo economy, basically voodoo math, essentially. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I have a friend that I want him to come on my podcast and tell his specific story, and he absolutely refuses to do it. But it's a fascinating story about what went on in his apartment complex during during the crash. But um, anyway, so and I guess maybe that's one of the parallels between uh, or one of not parallel, but one of the drivers of Bitcoin is like there's so many people that remember the 2008 crash. Uh, some a lot of people will tell you that Bitcoin came about because of that crash. Uh, that's when it was released. Uh, the author, who's still unknown, uh, cited the crash specifically in the Genesis block when he asked when Bitcoin was first launched. 
um, he looked at a headline from the Times of London, uh, specifically quoting the bailouts that were happening at the time. And uh, that headline, uh, I, I don't remember it offhand, but uh, that's that was kind of the catalyst for uh, what launched Bitcoin to begin with. And anybody that's been in the space for as long as I have with it always thinks of that headline. Uh, that, and that's why we're all here. Um, Bitcoin was kind of created... Bit- you mean in the Bitcoin space? Totally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. People just, because of Bitcoin's origins, uh, everybody saw what happened in 2008. And it's always in the back of your mind that it could happen again. It strikes me that I might have some fairly young listeners. Um, why don't you, and I hate to stick you on the spot. I know, I know you've been a good sport about this, but... Mm-hmm. Why don't you, uh, in your own words, tell what the 2008 crash was psychologically? Uh, uh, I imagine it would have been a lot different. It would have been a lot different for me if I had owned property at the time. But fortunately for me, well, not even, I don't want to say fortunately for me, but uh, I was renting at the time. So um, I was a bit insulated from uh, what a, a lot of the stress and anguish that a lot of homeowners probably would have been going through. Uh, I mean, mind you, there's a lot of renters that were living in foreclosed properties, so they would have been evicted or kicked out and essentially homeless. Um, but just seeing that experience and living through it, it's um, you're kind of wondering what, what's what's going to happen with your savings. Like, uh, are you going to get thrown out of your uh, thrown out of your home? Uh, what's going to happen to your savings? What happens with your job? I mean, are you? It's uh, there's a lot of uncertainty that happens, and you just kind of have to uh, have to live through that. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. Right. I mean, the thing that, the thing that I, when I think back on it, the thing that I think back on is there were just so many people walking around in a fog, mm. you know, like literally I lived in, in my, I live in the suburbs now, but I lived in the, in my city then, like in a city then. And there were just so many people that you would just see walking around in a fog, like. It was as though, you know, the the Wizard of Oz had pulled back the curtain and nobody wanted to see it, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was so crazy. Um, uh, yes, it's, uh, history has the tendency to repeat itself. And um, yeah. this time around, I don't think it's an economic collapse that's caused that feeling. It's, uh, it's COVID. I mean, COVID has uh, really shocked the world. And I think it's having a very similar impact. What is surprising to me about COVID, uh, I guess COVID and the Spanish flu, is the similarities. The mm. similarities between the two are just shocking. Um, but yeah, exactly. And um, I guess like one of the things I look at with COVID, and I don't have too much of an understanding of economics, but one of the things I look at is this whole idea that we have of the global economy um, where we buy China's debt and China buys our debt and blah, blah, blah. And the world goes around. I'm wondering if that's a good idea. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I'm I'm wondering if that's sustainable. And Uh, what do you mean? Like, uh, sorry, I missed the first part of the question. (laughs) I'm wondering if it's sustainable and it's not really a question. It's more amusing. You know, amuse. I'm wondering if it's sustainable to to live in a society where we have 
these huge economies that buy each other's bonds, buy each other's debts, basically. I don't know. Just yeah, I mean, to continue on with the thought experiment, what if a lot of those countries, instead of buying bonds, what if they were buying Bitcoin instead? Well, and so the, thought with, ex- the thought experiment with, I have is, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, sorry, with, with Bitcoin, uh, it's not possible to just print more. It's artificially scarce. There's always going to be 21 million of them. So if countries were instead buying Bitcoin instead of just creating more debt, the effect you would see is the value of Bitcoin increasing astronomically because it's not possible for them to print any more. Well, I mean, wouldn't you be able to just make other cryptocurrencies? I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah that's kind of what uh, people have realized. Uh, in 2017, um, there was an argument in the community about big blocks versus small blocks. And uh, without going, I don't, I don't want to uh, uh, stoke the hornet's nest here, but um, suffice to say, in 2017, the, uh, the software forked. Uh, what I mean by forked is that uh, you started with one chain, and because of that disagreement, um, the software split. So you now have two different set of rules with a common origin, and you ended up with Bitcoin on one side and Bitcoin Cash on the other side. Uh, the differences before 2017 are there aren't any. They they were identical before 2017, but um, after that, the rules changed a bit, and you now have two competing cryptocurrencies with a common origin, but approach Bitcoin very differently, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thought experiment I have with the interlocking debt is what happens if either China or the U.S. or, I don't know, India or somebody simply stops buying and selling debt? Like, what happens if they go back to, you know, self-contained economies or something like that? Uh, it's hard to say. I, I'm not an economist, so I can't really speculate on it. But what I can say is a little. Uh, you might actually know about it from a historical perspective. Uh, in 1971, that was when the U.S. left the gold standard, and we ended up with the system that we have now. Um, I think that event may be similar to what you described. Right, but I think that was done as a way to to grow the economy. Uh, it was done because uh, the way I understand it, it was, um, again, I'm not an economist, so I could be completely wrong here. But uh, as I understand it, uh, the Bretton Woods system was a way for keeping honest countries honest. And reading a bit more into it, um, there's a really good podcast called What, what the F Happened in 1971 that uh, describes this well. And uh, it... Um, Basically, what they were saying was that uh, a lot of countries realized that if they just printed their own money, uh, they could kind of cheat the Bretton Woods system a little bit. And uh, that was what that was the real reason that the U.S. left the gold standard was uh, because other countries were cheating with their currencies a bit. There was no point in continuing it. So you ended up with the situation that you're that you're in now. Um, it's a really fascinating podcast. Uh, Peter McCormack did a, a good talk with the authors on it. Uh, you should check it out if you if you haven't yet. Okay, I'll uh, I might do that. I might even leave a link below in the description. Yeah, I can actually find the link for you, and I'll uh, I'll send it to you in the chat. Oh, cool. Or or in the email it to me. Yeah, we'll do. Email it to me because funny thing hap- a funny thing happens, and we're gonna hang up, and I'm gonna render the 
the audio, the, the chat sort of sometimes can kind of disappear. This is a yeah, fair enough. I'll, I'll email it to you. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, what I'm going to have to ask you to do is hang on while mm-hmm. I download the tracks. If you okay. don't mind. No, no worries. And then we can talk offline. <laughs> 